This is another look behind the scenes at Foresight's Vision Week in 2021. This time we discuss nanotech tools with Schmidt Futures' Tom Khalil, Adam Marblestone, then at Schmidt Futures, now at Astera, and Ben Reinhardt from Papa. We discuss in particular what kinds of tools nanotech still needs to make progress, what kinds of progress nanotech tools can enable in other areas, and what outside funders and talent can do to help progress along. If you find these discussions interesting, I welcome you to also consider our YouTube channel where you can actually find the tech trees that are filled out by our speakers in the back end. So I hope you enjoyed the session and uh, see you on YouTube. Just heard about a few molecular machines at tools, actually. Um, um, and uh, so some of the things that are uh, developed in our molecular machines group. And then we have a few people that really, I think, try to just make more of this stuff happening. And so we have like this, um, um, yeah, this really coalescence of really interesting ideas. And now not only ideas, but really projects now to actually speed up this research on a much larger scale. And you all have a background in this. So I think the talks that we just had really weren't anything new for you and you're actively trying to speed up the field. So I think this is a really interesting meta session to how to how we can discover of like, how can we make these really uh, fantastical, uh, fantastic ideas uh, come into fruition much, much sooner or how Ben uh, likes to call it more awesome sci-fi shit <laughs> sooner. <laughs> okay, so uh, Ben, maybe you want to start with your tree. All right, last session. Everybody, put away your phones. Put away your computers. We'll go through this quickly. It will be interesting and we can make more awesome sci-fi shit. All right, um, I will try to go through this very quickly. Um, so the thing that I'm in particular really interested in is solutions R&D, which is basically this area of things that are slightly too researchy to be startups, but too engineering or coordination heavy to be in academia. Um, and so there's uh, many ways that we could possibly push this forward. One thing is this thing, what I ca would call program design, uh, more broadly, just like planning, like how do you plan how do you, instead of sort of saying like, all right, everybody just like give me some proposals and we'll fund all of them or fund some of them. How do you actually say like, okay, like we should do some work here. We should do some work here. And uh, eventually that will come together to be something, be a broader system. Um, sort of like the, the, you could sort of think about this whole tech tree thing as some like a gesture towards a subset of uh, program design. And you'll see there's sort of a technology road mapping as part of program design, because I know that Adam, I sort of want to connect to what I, I, I cheated and looked at Adam's slide. And uh, so so that's there as well. Um, the Another thing is this, this idea that I call pay it forward tithing. So uh, I suspect that many people in this room are making money right now because someone in the past did some work on some technology um, and perhaps did not capture all the value of that technology. And so I sort of want to just inject this idea that uh, in the same way that people in the past uh, sort of tithed, gave away some portion of their income just to these these continuous problems in the world, like poverty and hunger, um, perhaps people who are making money off of technology should start thinking about giving money forward to the future, not to try to cat, like not to invest that money, but literally just so that people in the future can also be making money off of technology. Um and then there's this this uh, idea of of what Michael Nielsen called designed serendipity. Um, so the idea that like 
the the sort of thing that happens here at, at the conference where you meet someone and you're like, oh, like that you're working on something that's really important to my project. Um, and I, I could uh, and, and you start a collaboration. Um, I think that it might be possible to make that process much faster and better. Um, so like, why, why should we care about this? Um, one is uh, I'm particularly excited about new materials and manufacturing paradigms because they do tend to fall into this situation where uh, they're, they're too researchy for a startup and too engineering heavy for academia. Um, and if you think about it, materials and manufacturing really underlie civilization. We call it the Bronze Age or the Silicon Age for a reason. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also a big, I, I think that we need to change our technology paradigms towards things that are more robust. Uh, you look at everything right now and it is an exquisite black box that you either throw away, um, when a, or, or get a new one when it, uh, goes bad. And finally, um, uh, sorry, the, this, this one got a little screwed up. It's supposed to be question mark, question mark, question mark, because there's a lot of the things that we need to enable. We just like, don't even know them yet. Um, let's see, uh, the bottom should not have been that, let's see, that, so I may have screwed that up and copied Adam's thing. Um, I'm going to cover this up and say here, just what you should write is career paths. So one of, one of the like key problems to all of this, and I'm sure many of you notice this in, in your world, but as soon as you move away from uh academia or startup or things without an established career path you, you there, there's all these things where it's like oh we need these people to like do research outside of academia and it's like okay cool but like how like career paths there the, you get to this question of like okay like how like how do people like what what does that look like how do they not eventually try to play this other game um so those are those are some things to put in your head and now I'll pass the mic to whoever is next. Uh, so I'll, I'll explain how I think about this, which which actually relates a lot to the the tech tree concept. So so if you imagine we had a really good tech tree of how we get to all these advanced future capabilities that we want, and you go and you look at the nodes on these tech trees, and you you say, okay, here are, here are certain important nodes. I think there's a very high probability that some fraction of those nodes to actually, if you actually want to operationalize those things as projects, uh, they will not map onto any of our existing institutional or funding mechanisms for, for, for funding and, and, and for organizing projects. Um, the, the, you know, most, let's say, biomedical research is funded uh, either in commercial setting where you're trying to develop a specific kind of monetizable product or in an academic or an academic research lab um, where the work is done by graduate students and postdocs who are, the academic environment really optimizes for kind of novelty and for kind of individual creativity and individual publishable results. Um, and there, there are certain classes of problems and Ben, ben alluded uh, to, to some of that with this idea of solutions R&D where uh, he said, you know, two researchy for startups and, and two, uh, forget exactly what you said, system, too, too much team science or sort of systems engineering or management that you need, um, for the, for the academic setting that's more individual based. Um, so there are multiple different kinds of mechanisms that you can use for that. And so, you know, a lot of what Ben is developing is about 
you know, programs and program managers that can coordinate across multiple existing entities to help build systems. Um, in some cases, we think that there's, you, even if you did that, um, you're still going to run into something where you need even tighter knit coordination, something very similar to what a, the internals of a startup look like, where you basically have a CEO, you might have a chief operations officer, professional project managers, a very tight knit team, um, all working on the same goal um, in, in a kind of totally unified way. So, so what we're trying to do basically is to try to create more mechanisms for, for, for enabling those types of projects. And um, that poses a few different issues. So, so one thing is that because there isn't an existing uh, grant mechanism uh, for creating this in the same way that there is the venture capital industry for, for, for creating startups um, for, for more, more readily uh, short-term monetizable things, Part of what we have to do is just go and elicit from the research community, you know, what are ideas that you aren't talking about because they would need one of these projects, which we call focused research organizations, um, or maybe something like a, a private ARPA program um, in, in Ben's case, problems that would need these mechanisms. But people don't write that down and tell anybody about that because there's no way to, to fund that now. Um, and then part of that is then actually um, then getting philanthropists to support those ideas and creating more repeatable ways of, of, of doing that. Um, and so I think that there are problems in the molecular machine space. We don't entirely know uh, what they are yet. I think some of them, and Ben and I have a talk about this, about why we think this artificial ribosome idea is probably a very good map onto the private ARPA model. But I think there may also be molecular machine problems today that require the focus resource organization model um, of sort of these like nonprofit startup type concept. Um, one of them might be just generating really good data on how molecules behave in order to make better modeling tools or force fields or things like that. But we're sort of open to ideas about how you would do focus research organizations for, for molecular machines. Okay, cool. We have two examples here. And uh, Tom, no slide. I will ask you the questions, correct? Yes. Okay, good. Strong. So Tom, uh, you're almost like a meta, um, I think, FRO for spinning out people to, who spin out FROs. Like, and I think the Vision Weekend, who, um, which you spoke out at last was, I think, also the one two years ago. And you talked about like large moons, moonshot projects. Uh, and you definitely, I think, have just a really good eye, I think, for, um, through Schmidt Futures and, and through a variety of other organs of just like people who have a really good eye on other people who have a really good eye on like what needs to happen next in science. Uh, and so, um, and so how do you, how did you develop this skill and like what do you think uh, is still left uncovered? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in is, uh, as Adam and, and Ben said, you know, we, we have a set of existing institutions that are, that are good at some things and, and not at others. So obviously, um, I don't lose any sleep about, uh, uh, whether we're making sufficient, uh, investments in enterprise software, uh, because there are lots of venture capitalists who are investing in, in enterprise software. I think that there are some things where, there are a set of activities where the um, the social return is high uh, and the and the private uh, return is low, um, and that uh, could be because it's a public good, or because the the sort of payoff, the economic payoff, is going to occur a long time in the future, and it's not immediately going to lead to uh, a commercially viable product or service. One of the things that I'm interested in is that. Uh, you now have a class of high net worth individuals 
um, who I believe could play a role in the 21st century, similar to the role that the Medici's played in the Italian Renaissance, uh, with a greater emphasis on advances in science and technology, both in terms of expanding the frontiers of human knowledge. So this is supporting things like astrophysics, for example, where the, the, the only goal is we want to understand more about the ultimate fate of the universe, um, but also could be supporting activities that solve important societal challenges. And I think that there is a key bottleneck there, uh, which is that uh, as those high net worth individuals, uh, you know, go around uh, and, and visit with different people, for example, if they went and visit u- university researchers, every university researcher would say, well, the, ob- the answer is obvious. You should fund my lab. <laughs> right? Um, and so then, so they're subject to a little bit of uh, paralysis because everyone they talk to uh, is going to say, you, you should fund me. Uh, so the so the question is is what are some processes uh, that uh, would uh, that they could have trust in? Um, and let me give you another an area from another example of uh, philanthropy as opposed to science philanthropy, which is that there is a foundation that developed a reputation for for being really rigorous for identifying interventions that were aimed at helping. Uh, low-income youth and their families. Uh, and they did a very good job of identifying nonprofit organizations and social enterprises that had two characteristics. One is that their intervention had been rigorously evaluated using a randomized controlled trial where possible. So they could, you could make a causal statement about the impact of their intervention, uh, number one. And number two, that um, their management team was strong enough to be able to absorb additional funding and scale that intervention in a scalable and reliable way. And so as a result, you now have a number of high net worth individuals that will just send that organization check and delegate decision-making to that organization, confident uh, that the money will be, um, that the money will be put to work. Um, And so uh, what I'm interested in is what are the types of institutions that would do the same thing in the area of, uh, of science philanthropy. So, for example, um, Adam has good taste. So, when Adam goes to uh, a philanthropist, he's not saying, fund my lab. He's saying, I went out and talked to 100 scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs and identified the following area where, A, there's an important scientific and te- technical bottleneck. B, there would be large scientific and societal gains if we address that bottleneck and see there's a plausible, you know, five-year research push that we could make that would, uh, has, has a decent chance of relaxing that bottleneck. And that's more compelling than, uh, the, the, the individual philanthropist running into an individual researcher who's saying, fund my lab. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I think we could think about doing is to, Imagine, uh, you know, a multi-sided marketplace where you have, on the on the one hand, philanthropists who would like to invest some percentage of their wealth in public goods, uh, in those areas of research that are are not appropriate for uh, for venture capital or or private investment. Um, program managers who have an investment thesis, 
So for example, you know, buried in a lot of these tech trees, I think is a really interesting philanthropic thesis. So someone said, hey, you know, could someone do uh, the research to discover all the ligands that we would need so that we could deliver, you know, nucleic acid therapies to every organ in the body, right? So if if we knew that 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 didn't make sense to do as a company, but would absolutely make sense to do as a philanthropic project, then I think you could, number one, explain that to philanthropists and then, you know, recruit the the Martin Jensen equivalent uh, uh, or the uh, the Adam and Sam equivalent who could do a good job of being a steward for an investment uh, for a, uh, a a fund to go solve that problem. So I think that could be a scalable mechanism. To give you a sense for how big this problem is, um, uh, for the 2,000 families that have half a billion dollars or more in wealth, do you, what, what do you think their level of philanthropy is right now, if you had to guess? What's your Bayesian prior? I don't know. Um... It's 1.2%. Okay, well, okay. So, so if you make the very conservative assumption that they're doing as well as the S&P 500, what you see is their wealth is increasing at a, at a uh, much larger rate uh, than, uh, uh, than, their, uh, than their philanthropy. So, they, so they, they are, their wealth is increasing at a much faster rate than they can give the money away. Now, it's also good for them to make commercial investments, right? So you see a lot of them uh, you know, making investments in fusion. And I think that's great too. And I think that this could, you know, that sort of in, investment in, in startups is, is something that is great as well. But I do think that there are a, a class of problems that it's difficult to say, oh, a startup should, you know, try to solve that problem. Um, and I don't think that we're going to tr- solve that problem by having individual scientists and engineers say, you should fund my lab because, uh, unless they're going to go invest in a large professional staff, they're not going to be able to figure out what to do. And so what I think we, that we need is um, uh, investment theses. That is to to say, if you made an investment in this area, it, it there's a potential for large scientific and economic and societal gains. This is not something that venture capital is going to address. And then you need a person who is going to help manage that investment uh, in collaboration with a set of, you know, reviewers and advisors. And I think this could be in the same way that we have, we we're seeing this work for low income youth. Um, uh, I, I, I could imagine that working in the, in the area of philanthropy around science and innovation. Okay. Very interesting point. I like, you know, the whole point of the, um, you know, tech tree, um, procedure A of just it being a really good plot device that people here can figure out across disciplines what everyone else is working on is actually that if some of these challenges are tractable and, and if people do get excited about them, people could put bounties on them, right? Um, um, theoretically and could fund them throughout the next year, right? So that's one thing. But what you mentioned of just like some people going out and saying like, Hey, this is my lab, but at least here people have said like, Hey, I want this to be done so that I can do my work. So it's not necessarily their lab. So that's already sure. like a good yeah. signal. Absolutely. But uh, for the decentralized mechanism, you know, like where you crowdfund this, for example, via crypto node, you have the verification problem of just like, what does it mean to, f- when this is done su- sufficiently, right? And so I think that verification problem is something that you're trying to solve by just having yeah, trust trustworthy people. On and it. I think that having trust 
in in the set of individuals uh and and the process um i i think in many instances is still going to be an important element of this yeah so i i'm i'm not certain that a, you know a dao is going to eliminate the need for trust between individuals yeah i think in the sense that it makes it easier for crypto native individuals to um uh, to invest potentially just a lower barrier there absolutely um but yeah, yeah. but but like for example what, um i believe that martin jensen played an important role in people willing to give him money to fund the impetus fund for sure yes <laughs> yeah um no I, i i certainly agree and i think i mean um i think the entire layer like whenever i i talk to you guys i like i th Yeah, what you said of like Adam has good taste, <laughs> I think one can definitely tell. So I would love to know a little bit from you guys. Like I heard from you the artificial ribosome and um, you had one on molecular machines. But could you give us a few more potential spin outs that you're dreaming about, at least if you can talk about them? Like what are other tasteful things uh, you have on your mind these days? Should I just start going through the list? <laughs> Why not? Okay, uh, let's see if I can do this off the top of my head. And uh, let's see. So... Um, tele general purpose telerobotics, um, interfacing proteins and electronics. Um, right now we're working on a program, uh, to basically 3D print integrated circuits. Um, uh, building, like sort of doing the meta thing and a program to build tools for design serendipity is, is a program that we're, we're trying to spin up. Um, And then, uh, sort of thinking about artificial cells as bio as like artificial bioreactors. Um, those are, those are a couple off the top of my head. Well, that's a few already. Okay. That's a good laundry list. And you're tackling them or do you just throw them out there? What's, um, what's the all of these are in, uh, in different sort of stages of program design. Uh, and what that means is that I very slowly sort of like do the program manager thing on them until I hopefully find a program manager. Um, and, and get them funded and kick them off. Uh, the one that is actually a started program is, uh, the printing, 3D printing integrated circuits. Okay, cool. So what do you need? Like if someone, um, oh, one of the, I need two, two, two things, money and program managers. Money and program managers. Good. Like two sided market, I guess, in this sense too. Adam, what's Wait, on your yeah. mind? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about things that we just, just launched. Um, and then I'll tell you a little bit about things that, that we're thinking about. So. So in uh, this past fall, we launched three different focused research organizations um, with, with two different philanthropists funding them so far. Um, one of them, Todd Huffman, already talked about a little bit, called E11 Bio. Is Todd still here? Uh, I'm not sure if Todd's here. Andrew, Andrew Payne is here, is also, uh, is here and is also a, a founder of that project. Um, and in, in, in that one, I think it's a pretty good example of the model um, because the, the idea there is to... Um, is to try to make a, a faster, cheaper, better, more scalable, more information-rich way of mapping circuitry in the brain. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in the academic setting, you know, that's hard to do because there are these many different pieces of science and engineering that have to sort of very tightly co-integrate. Um, the biology and the microscopy and the chemistry have to all come together. Um, and then on the, on the commercial side, um, you know, it's kind of obvious, like... It, It, like we want the neuroscience community to just have maps of the brain, right? And that was going to benefit everyone. And there's a bunch of potential also kind of, you know, commercial applications long-term for this. 
Um, but if you were to just focus on the commercial side of that, it would it would narrow you down um, to to, to some, the, the, the the shortest path to something that looks like a a a, a drug for a brain disease sort of doesn't perfectly go through all of the capital that you have to spend and all the work you have to do to get a really good general purpose brain mapping system. So that that's one that we did. Uh, we have another one in synthetic biology. And then uh, Jose is here who came up with this idea for the rejuvenome, which is, we can think of it as sort of like a focused research organization, in, inspired project um, in the sense that it is leveraging existing organizations um, to, to get the work done, but it's still managed and organized and structured in a way that's very similar to that. And, and the, you know, the realization there, is, as I think Jose talked about, is, you know, there are many different aspects of the aging process. And, uh, you know, in an academic setting, it's sort of, it's, it's much easier to focus on a particular hypothesis, you know, how do senescent cells contribute to, you know, aging of the liver or something like that. But if you want to really be comprehensive and understand how different parts of the body interact, you need to do a much larger scale, um, more unbiased, hypothesis-free kind of measurement approach. And that's just logistically and operationally intensive to do that. So tools that make maps and then the maps themselves. Tools that make maps and maps themselves. And I think you, you, can, you can generalize that to some other areas. Like there's a lot of things in climate um, where, you know, lots of different potential ways of leveraging natural ecosystems or, you know, soils or the ocean or other things for um, carbon drawdown, right? And oftentimes you'll read reports that will say, well, we don't really understand, you know, how to, this is a very multi-parameter space. We don't really understand, you know, what would be the effect on these ecosystems, you know, how much carbon can soil really store or things like that. Um, so therefore, we can't immediately go and, and do a project on, on, on implementing this as a drawdown method. But you can think of that also as just a very logistically intensive mapping or, or measurement problem. Um, also, you know, adjacent to longevity, um, you know, a, a lot of what the rejuvenome is going to rely on is single cell analysis, single cell sequencing of, of the RNA and say, you know, which cell types and how do their gene expression change, you know, with aging? Um, and could you reverse that? But um bunch of other measurement modalities that have to be developed um, that are measurement platforms like proteomics. Um, I think you can think of that as a longevity enabler, but it's, it's also broader than that. So, so those are, those are some of the things we're thinking about. Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, controversy associated with growing inequality in wealth. Um, but one of the things about um, high net worth individuals is that they have a lot of flexibility. Um, so what do we mean by that? So they can engage in um, commercial investing. They can engage in philanthropy. They can engage in advocacy for policy changes. Uh, and they can engage in coalition building. And so um, to me, that means that the gains to agenda setting, and I all I mean by agenda setting is being able to answer questions like, with respect to some problem or opportunity, where are we now? Where do we want to be? And how would we get there? Has increased because if you do come up with a really good idea, like an FRO, there's now, you know, a fairly large number of individuals and families that if they wanted to fund that, they could. Um, so the thought experiment uh, that I used to pose to people um, when I worked for President Obama is, you have a meeting with the uh, president in the Oval Office, and he says, Allison, if you give me a good idea for advancing existential hope, then I will call anyone on the planet. Uh, it can be a conference call, so there can be more than one person on the line. 
If it's someone inside the government, I can direct them to do something because I'm their boss. If it's someone outside the government, I can challenge them to do something. So all you have to do is to tell me who I should call and what I should ask them to do. So I do think there's, this, there's, a, there's an opportunity for people who are engaged in agenda setting to say, what is the coalition of the, in order to make progress in one of these areas, what is the coalition of the willing and able uh, that we would need to build? And there are people who are in a position to help make that happen. The magic telephone. Oh, did, did you call it this? The magic magic laptop in the sense magic that laptop. A, any press release that you write will come true. Yeah. Yes. It's a nice thought experiment. Um, all right. Um, so you already mentioned what would help you. What would help you guys? Any requests, any challenges that you... I mean, you already have the increasing the pool of funders and founders for FROs. Can you make it a little bit more yeah, concrete? Yeah. So often what we're we're trying to do is is as as Tom mentioned, there's sort of this there's three sided marketplace. There's there's people, there's ideas, and you have to be able to sort of evaluate those in some somewhat more objective way than just just the people that are proposing them, you know, uh, uh, di directly um, mediating that that discussion. There's the people, the ideas, and, and the funders, and and each one of those um, we need to do a lot of active work. So we need to do a lot of active work, um, and Milan, who's here, is is working on that. Uh, of, of sor sourcing, um, sourcing and eliciting, you can think of it as part of the, the road mapping or tech tree process of what are, what are projects that are shaped like FROs that hit key bottlenecks that need to be done, which is just, it's just not an obvious thing because it's not anybody's next obvious next step that they're already working on. Um, oftentimes those ideas come from people in the research community, but then we need to pair them with more like operational co-founders, you know, COO or CEO uh, or chief of staff kind of type roles. Um, very similar as I think what, what startup, like, you know, deep tech startups sort of face and with, you do venture creation. And then we need to, we need to really increase the, the amount of, of funding and people who, who want to, uh, contribute and, and donate to this because I think we will have many more ideas than we have, um, you know, immediate, um, funding opportunity. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that it's not the ideas that are lacking. Okay, anything for you, Tom? Uh, any challenge that you want to put out there to people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, the ability to identify people who can think at a slightly more m meta level than uh, you should fund me, uh, but who have sort of a theory of change for a field as a whole. So, for example, someone we're working with had the observation that Uh, protein engineering may be near a tipping point and that a relatively small investment could get the field uh, to em embrace automation. Uh, and so that graduate students and postdocs, as opposed to spending all their time pipetting, could spend all their time on the design of experiments and then be able to send that out uh, to a cloud lab. Um, and so the, the, the insight that this was sort of in the adjacent possible, that this is not something that is going to take, you know, a decade or something like that, number one. Number two, um, that it would have large, it could have large benefits if we were able to pull this off. And number three, a sense of how to do that, right? So it's it's uh, finding people who have an investment, who have a sort of a thesis for an investment like that, uh, that could have a, a, a large impact. Okay, lovely. Wow, those are a few meta goals. And so um, we will probably have your, we had your uh, tech trees on the molecular machines one. We can maybe scooch them out into like a meta tech 
acceleration uh, tree. Institutional innovation. Institutional innovation tree. Okay, lovely. All right. Thank you so much, guys. This was, I think, quite the nice uh, meta wrap up. So um, this concludes our panels for today. And so this means that we take one break and then we meet again here. Um, at Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>